fellow students, if you would turn to Revelation 8. Revelation 8, you're going to be real helpful to have your Bibles in front of you. You're going to need it. Uh, we've last couple of weeks we've been in the Great Tribulation, the period of time in Revelation from chapters 6 through 18, 19, 20, but largely 6 through 18 is the period of the Great Tribulation. In the Old Testament, the Great Tribulation is always called the Day of the Lord or the Day of Jehovah, and it's throughout the Old Testament, the Day of the Lord and the Day of Jehovah is, rec is referred to over and over and over again. And what it refers to is a period of human history where God is going to put an end to evil. He's going to put an end to evil ones. He's going to bring about a worldwide revival. He's really going to repossess and retake his planet, and he's going to inaugurate his kingdom on earth. By the way, just for those of you who are wondering, planet earth is not a democracy. It's not a dictatorship. It's not an oligarchy. It's not a republic. It's not an aristocracy. It's not even a kleptocracy where people get, get their way by stealing. It's a kingdom. And wherever there's a kingdom, there's a king and we have a coming king he is physically returning for his second and final visit to planet earth as a matter of fact this second time is not going to be a visit he's taking up permanent residence on the planet and he will rule and reign from jerusalem so the the key thing here to remember is king jesus is not coming back to planet earth to take sides when king jesus comes back he comes back to take over right so when you read the newspapers and you look at the television and you're on the internet and you see the planet falling apart, you should not be surprised. It doesn't surprise the king. It's all part of the plan, okay? It's almost like, let me give you a word picture. It's almost like parents that leave their children at home for an evening out. Now, back in the day when I was a kid, it was safe for parents to leave children at home alone. And we got left home alone when my oldest brother was 10. And my parents said, Lance is in charge, obey him, and if you don't, we'll take it out of your hide and we get back. But of course, when parents leave, sometimes things spiral out of control, and the children are dominating each other and fighting and quarreling and squabbling, etc. And you can almost hear one of the children say, wait till mom and dad come home. They're going to fix this, and they're going to fix you. Right? Right? You ever had that happen? Sure enough, when mom and dad come home, they sort things out, they make things right, they correct what is wrong. And if you want to stretch this word picture a little bit, but not too much, God's human children on the planet right now are busy fighting each other, dominating each other, even killing each other. And we have some of the stronger children that beat each other up. And so some of the weaker children get together and they hold these things called elections. And we're going to elect somebody who's strong enough to take control of this situation. And here's the bad news. There's no permanent solution until King Jesus comes back and sets things right. Now, here's the good news. He is coming back. Amen? Amen. He's coming back. All right, verse 1. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Jesus Christ, the Lamb, has now broken the last seal on the scroll that we first got in, uh, reviewed in chapter 6, and he's unrolled it, and we went through the first six seal judgments two weeks ago. Last week we saw the interlude where the 144,000 evangelists were sealed, and now he's unrolled the scroll, and all of heaven can see the last set of judgments that's coming on planet Earth. Because remember, the seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments. Inside the seventh seal are the seven trumpet judgments, right? And inside the seventh trumpet judgment are the seven bowl judgments. 
How many of you have ever seen these little dolls? There's one nestled inside of each other. You know, the Russian dolls, you open it and there's another one. And you open, there's, that's what this is. There's three of them. The seal judgments are on the outside. The last seal judgment has all the trumpet judgments. Last week, we found that out. Now, we're going to open the trumpet judgments this week, and the last trumpet judgment, we have another doll. It's called the seven bowl judgments, which we're going to get to in chapter 16. So when they open the seventh seal, they see everything that is to come. Everything is to come, and the response of heaven is stunning. It's the first time in history of heaven where heaven is absolutely silent. There's no sound. When you read about heaven in Scripture, it's always portrayed as a place of worship. It's always portrayed as a place of joy, of praise, of song, a lot of noise, a lot of activity in heaven. The four living creatures now, silent. The 24 elders, silent. There's millions and millions of angels that say nothing. The multitudes of the redeemed around the throne are silent. Probably the most staggering is the throne is silent. I had a guy come up to me in four class and he said, I have a new theological insight. I said, what's that? He said, I read this passage and I've discovered there's no women in heaven because it's silent for 30 minutes. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. And I'm not naming any names, all right? But no one makes a sound for 30 minutes. Now, you know, 30 minutes goes by in a hurry when you're having fun, but 30 minutes can feel like an eternity. When you ask your true love to marry you and they just sit there for 30 minutes in total silence and look at you, it probably feels like eternity. Imagine you're in court for a crime. You go to the jury trial, the jury comes back with their verdict, and you wait for the judge to proceed, and you're standing in front of the bench, and the judge just looks at you for 30 minutes. And the courtroom is silent. You would think that was an eternity. It felt like an eternity. Interesting, in the Old Testament, we're commanded to keep silent in God's presence. Habakkuk 2.20 said, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep talking before Him. Is that what it says? says that all the earth, you know, keep silent before him. See, we humans, we're so busy making noise that we fail to obey God's command to be still, and then you will know that I am God, you know. If you want to hear God speak, you have to stop speaking yourself, right? I have a vernacular word for that, but I'm not going to say it. It's interesting that while heaven is dead silent, the earth is very noisy. Life is going on, right? People are on their iPhones and everything else, but heaven is silent because they understand the devastation that's coming. This silence is a silence of awe. And uh, if heaven is speechless when they look at God's judgments, we probably should be too. Here's the key idea. God's judgments are so severe, and we're going to open this, and you're going to find out how severe they are in the next half hour, because our sin is so serious. God's judgments are so severe because our sin is so serious. God's judgments are extreme, but so is God's grace. See, when you read chapter 8, you will look at God's solutions to man's problems, and you will say, I didn't know that it was that bad. Because the solutions are off the wall, serious, 
extreme, right? You begin to understand the depth of our problem when you see to the extent that God's going to go to solve that problem. But God's grace is even more extreme. Nothing is more extreme than God, the creator God, dying for sinful creation, creation man, right? Is that not extreme? Is that not extraordinary that God would die for his own creation? Himself. And he's innocent and we're guilty. That's extreme. So in the middle of this judgment, I want you to see the extremes of God's grace. Verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, these are special angels. I want you to note the definite article that says, the angels. The being a specific group of angels. As a matter of fact, some theologians call these angels the presence angels. The presence angels, which means they stand in God's presence all the time. Remember what Gabriel told Mary in Luke 1.19? He said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Right? In God's presence all the time. Access to God 100% of the time. You know, in ancient times, you had to get special permission to go in and see a monarch. Right? That's not a butterfly, that's a king. Right? In today's world, you probably couldn't just walk into the White House and go to the Oval Office and say, you are going to listen to my opinion, Mr. President. Right? You probably need to get clearance, get through, you know, Secret Service, etc., etc. But there are some people that can walk into the Oval Office anytime they want. If they're the children of the president, as we found out with JFK, his kids could walk in the Oval Office. He's in the middle of a state meeting. They can walk right in because they're related. They're children. These angels have that kind of access. It's interesting, Matthew 18.10. Matthew 18.10 is one of the passages that's often quoted to demonstrate that your grandchildren have guardian angels. Matthew 18.10, Jesus said, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels, their angels, your children and grandchildren's angels in heaven, continually see the face of my Father. Which should give us some comfort. You wonder if your children or your grandchildren are going to be okay. Yeah, God has got them in the palm of his hand. And the angels who watch over them are in God's presence all the time. So we know that God's created angels in a hierarchy. In the New Testament, we call them principalities and powers and rulers and dominions. In the Old Testament, they called them cherubim and seraphim and chief priests, princes and archangels. But God's got different job descriptions for each one of these different angels. And he's given this group a specific job description. And their job description is to blow seven trumpets. Now, in the, in, in the scriptures, trumpets are used for very specific things. Trumpets are used to break camp. When Israel was in camp and it was time to pack up and head out, they blew a certain sound on the trumpets. If it was, there was a declaration of war, war was declared with trumpets, right? When they had to call people to an assembly, it's time to meet. There was a different blast on the trumpets for that purpose at that point in time. And uh, when it was time for worship, there was a whole nother set of trumpet blasts. When you introduced a king, there was a set of trumpet blasts. So trumpets were used to communicate. When the priest blew the trumpet at the walls of Jericho, what happens? The walls fell down. In chapter 8, you're going to find out when these seven angels blow their trumpets, almost everything on earth gets smashed flat. Right? So just a prelude. Verse 3. They're getting ready to blow the trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which were before the throne. Now some people look at this other angel and say, well, he's behaving like a priest. He's offering incense, so it must be Jesus. But Jesus is the one who's breaking the seals. 
Jesus is the one who gives the incense to this priest. And just FYI, in the New Testament, Jesus is never called an angel, ever. The Old Testament, he's called the angel of the Lord. New Testament, he's never called an angel. So it's our persuasion that this is another angel who's in the process of burning incense on the altar. Now, there is an altar in heaven, you obviously see that, that corresponds to the altar of incense in the Jewish temple. Um, the Jewish temple or the tabernacle, both of them had two altars. One was a brazen altar, it was an altar of burnt offering, and that's where they actually slew the animals and spilled the blood as an atonement for sin. So that was outside, that was the brazen altar. Inside the holy place, one of the enclosures, there was a little altar of incense, three feet high, 18 inches by 18 inches square, three feet high, made of acacia wood, which is pretty impervious to insects, and they overlaid it with gold, and that's where they burned the incense. Now, incense is, there's about five spices, four to five spices that went into the Jewish incense formula. We don't know what the formula was because it was a, it was a secret sauce, right? We really, we really don't know what it was, but it was apparently not to be used anywhere but inside the temple. And if you use that secret sauce outside the temple, you were in pretty deep trouble. So the incense was burned on the altar, and what you find this angel doing, you find this angel taking a censer. Now the word censer is a little copper fire pan. It's a little copper fire pan that you either held by chains, or you could actually hold it with a handle. But that little copper fire pan, the, the angel or the priest would go to the brazen altar where there was hot coals, that's where they did the burnt offering. They'd take hot coals, they'd put in this little fire pan, they'd go back inside the holy place, and they'd have the altar of incense, they'd have their spices, and they'd sprinkle these spices on top of these hot coals, and it would burn. And when it burned, you'd have this fragrance. You'd have this huge, beautiful fragrance, and that fragrance would ascend to God. And that's a symbol of the prayers of God's people because the same time that the priest was burning this incense, God's people were praying outside, right? Remember when Zacharias was offering incense and the angel came and said, I know you're 90 or whatever you are, but Elizabeth's going to have a baby? He was burning incense and God's people were praying outside and that's when he saw the vision of angels. So the whole purpose here in the Old Testament, incense always represents the prayers of God's people, right? Those two are inextricably put together. What's so amazing to me here, I, I blew by this verse and I came back to it and I thought, wow, what's he talking about here? I want you to notice the last phrase of this verse. That the angel might add it to the prayers of all of the saints upon the golden altar which were before the throne. It seems to say that all the prayers of God's people throughout all of history are kept on top of the golden altar before the throne of God, which means unlike mail, your prayers never get lost, right? Your prayers never get rerouted. They don't wind up at the wrong email address, right? You got the wrong URL, right? Seems like all your prayers not just get to heaven, but God never throws them away. The word picture is, is he actually collects all your prayers and keeps them on top of the golden altar in front of the throne. Which means your prayers matter. Because God doesn't just forget them, he keeps them on the throne. He collects them. They're kept by him on the altar at that point in time. Okay, this is a shameless plug for the movie War Room. If you haven't seen the movie War Room, 
go go see it. It's all about the prayer closet. It's where the power is. So it's, 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 it's ultimate spiritual strategy. That's what we're talking about here. Your prayers are collected by God on his altar, and he keeps them because God is the perfect father. And God delights in, in responding to the prayers of his people and meeting their needs, just like you do for your children, right? Your children come to you at that point. Now, our prayers may not be answered the way God wants them. I mean, the way we want them. But God never forgets them, and he keeps them. For almost 2,000 years, God's people have prayed, well, what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the principle. And when I read this, I thought, this is one of these you go, duh, and then you realize, I don't pray anything like this. Here's the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven. It's to get God's will done on earth. Most of our prayers are 180% out of sync. Most of the time, we're trying to persuade God to do our will in heaven. Oh God, I got this problem. Oh God, I got the solution for you. Oh God, if you would just do this solution, right? Enact this solution on heaven. Take so-and-so, send them to heaven now because I'm tired of dealing with them, right? I mean, they're going to be with you, so you'll deal with them, so I won't have to deal with them. That'll be a good thing for all of us. My wife will really love you, blah, 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 blah. You know, you know the deal, right? The purpose of prayer is not to get our will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. What do we say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just like it is up there, right? So when we ask God for things evaluate. Am I asking God's will to be done on earth or am I trying to persuade God to do my will in heaven? I'm really convicted with this. I'm really convicted because my, my praying is far too often about getting my will done. So evaluate. What am I praying for? <laughs> when you look at this picture, God's collected all the prayers of God's saints throughout history. His children keeps them on the altar. He remembered those prayers and now he's going to act on them. He's going to act on them. He's going to impose his will on a rebellious world, and we're going to see that in a few minutes. Verse 4 says, The smoke of the incense, the prayers of the saints, they're the same thing, incense and prayers, goes up before God. So God is hearing the prayers. God is smelling the sweet incense. God longs to hear your prayers. So he views that as a very positive thing when his children talk to him. Remember that when um, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, he loved the Jewish people, Acts 10. The angel came, told Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a fragrance to God, as a memorial before God. So those prayers that you keep praying are precious to God. Don't stop praying, for heaven's sakes, don't stop praying. Verse 5, the angel took the censer. Angel grabbed this little fire pan. He goes over to the altar. He grabs a bunch of coals. And you think he's going to go back to the altar of incense and he's going to offer more incense. Is that what happens? No. What does he do with the coals? Throws fire to the earth. It says there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So he hurls the fire to the judgment, of judgment to earth. Here's what is sobering. Judgment on earth is occurring in part because God's people have prayed for God's holiness to occur on the planet. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, God's will is now going to be done. So be careful what you pray for. 
right? Seriously. Think carefully about what comes out of your mouth when you ask for stuff. Because sometimes you ask for stuff, the Lord finally says, you got it. A year later you go, who was the idiot that asked for that? That wasn't me. I have amnesia about that. It must be somebody else that asked for that. Yeah, right. But God is now acting on the prayers of the saints. In his time, he is going to retake his planet. And by the way, when you see fire, thunder, lightning, and earthquake, that is not a sign of smooth sailing. That's a sign of a storm. That's a sign of judgment. Verse 7. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. So each angel has a trumpet, and when the trumpet sounds, another judgment's going to take place. Now, the first four judgments are all related. That's what we're going to cover today. The first four. And they affect only the physical earth. The first four judgments affect the physical earth. It takes seven verses to describe these four judgments. The next two trumpet judgments take 50 verses to describe. That's where we're going to be next week and the week after. And they don't affect the physical earth. They affect the people on the earth. Much more severe judgments. The last three trumpet judgments will curl your hair if you don't even need a curling iron. Right? So the progressive severity of these judgments is grace. When you have a kid that's screwing up, do you ever warn him? Or do you just whack him? <laughs> do you whack him the first time or do you warn him first? You say, I saw you do that. If you do it again, here's what's going to happen to you, right? Yeah. You, you warn him. Good parents typically warn, right? So God's warning, and every time he ratchets up the severity of the judgment, it's grace because he's giving us time to repent. He says, look, this one hurt. This one's really going to hurt. Now, you can change. You don't have to have the two wax, right? You can just get one. But if you keep screwing up, I got 10. I got 20, right? So God progressively ratchets up the pain so that we will repent. Why would you suffer, right? I mean, what's the point? God doesn't want us to suffer. He said, I'm not willing that any should perish. He wants us all going home with him in heaven. Okay, verse 7. Let's jump into these four trumpet judgments. And the first trumpet judgment sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, when you get to this point in time, you're going to come to a very much a big fork on the road in terms of interpretation. There are those that will interpret this in a symbolic sense, which they will say, well, the grass means this, and the trees mean this, and the hail means this, and the fire means this, number, so it means something other than what it says. That's interpreting Revelation symbolically, right? Here's the real question. What did God intend to reveal to us when he used these words? What was God's intention? I mean, he's the author of it, right? God means what he says, says what he means, right? So we strongly believe that it's best to interpret Scripture in a literal, plain, common sense fashion. The Bible does use figures of speech, by the way. However, those figures of speech are used very, very consistently. Blood in the Old Testament means the same thing as blood in the New Testament. So when you see these word pictures... They're used very consistently throughout Scripture, so you don't have to say, wonder what he means. It's going to be pretty clear at that point in time. Here's the hermeneutical principle we talked about a month ago. The context always interprets the text. For those of you that are students, you can write that down. The context always interprets the text. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. If you don't know what something means, do a word study and say, how many other times in the Bible does God use that word? And you will get the lens on it 
passage and you'll understand what it says at that point. So we are going to approach this from a very straightforward standpoint. It's important that this first trumpet judgment falls on the dry land, right? And God has used physical hail. When he says hail, I assume he's talking about what? Hail, hail right? He's used physical hail before. Exodus 9, what was the seventh plague upon Egypt? Hail and fire. We've seen this before. Now, hailstorms are usually localized, right? When they show up, they kind of show up over a particularly small region. This hailstorm and firestorm is so vast, it's going to burn up one-third of the earth, the surface of the earth. One-third of the trees and all the green grass. Interesting. North America and South America, the continents together account for about 28% of the world's surface landmass. 28%. How much does this firestorm tear up? 33. So you can take off the North American, South American continent, and you still got about another, you know, several percentage points to go before you get to one-third, right? Just to give you an idea of the scale of judgment we're talking about here. It's going to destroy one-third of the Earth's surface at that point in time. Remember, there's been an earthquake. If you didn't notice that, that showed up. And when you have a massive worldwide earthquake, you're going to have volcanic activity. Every time we have massive earthquakes, we have almost always volcanoes. So you got burning lava. It says there's lightning, right? You think there's going to be fires? I suspect there's going to be a lot of fires. You think the grasslands could get burnt up if you have enough lava, enough lightning strikes? Yeah, especially in California. How many wildfires we got going west of the Rockies? Dozens? Yeah, way too many. Amen, brother. So when they say the word trees are burned up here, he's talking about fruit trees as well as forests. When he's talking, what does grass do? Grass feeds livestock. And one of our most common types of grass on planet Earth is something called wheat. We're kind of addicted to wheat, right? We use it for cereals and breads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So what are you looking at here? You're looking at major food supply problems. Massive food supply problems. If one-third of all the grass, one-third of all the trees, I mean all the grass, one-third of all the trees, and the foliage is burned up and torched, what's going to happen to food production? What's going to happen to crops, right? You think food's going to be rationed? Mm, pretty scarce? Oh, yeah. You got forests destroyed. You got watersheds destroyed. You got massive erosion. You got wood shortages. Don't try and build a house. Wood's going to be a real problem. You've got habitat destruction. You've got major oxygen problems. Oxygen levels are going to plummet. Because you know when you get major fires, what happens to the smoke? It go, you've got a very, very smoky atmosphere. I want to give you the picture of the implications of what we're talking about here at this point. Who will make a lot of money in this period of time is pulmonologists, right? Okay. You've got major respiratory problems. It's going to make Beijing look really, really clear. So you're going to have a lot of death and a lot of disease because of lack of oxygen, because of the fires, because of the smoke, because of the food problems, etc., etc. And you already know that you can get hailstones that can destroy buildings and trees and cars and people and crops, etc. Now, he said there's going to be blood. He could be actually referring to actual blood because there's going to be a lot of death. You're going to have a lot of bodies around, obviously, at that point in time. Or it could refer to death in general because what does the Old Testament say? The life is in the... So if you shed blood, you, you, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're producing death at that point. So blood, he could be talking about literal blood, I'm sure he is, but he could also include a broader term that means blood is death, and so there's going to be a lot of death at that point. Here's the overarching principle of all these judgments, at least these four. Here's the principle. God will destroy man's entire life support system. 
in order to bring people to repentance. Here's the last part I can't believe I wrote. In love, he may do the same for you. God loves us enough to do anything to bring us to repentance because he wants us in heaven with him forever, right? God is very, very willing for Brad Hannock to suffer pain in this life if that's, the, if that's what it takes to get me to the point of repentance because he wants me in heaven with him forever. Hey, say amen. Don't look at me and go, there's got to be an easier way, Brad. There's got to be an easier way. Yeah, yeah, there is. It's called repent early, right? <laughs> Surrender now. Don't wait. Why, why would you suffer? I mean, submit and you can avoid a lot, you know, avoid the June rushes, they say. You can avoid a lot of pain. Here's the point. God's destroying the entire physical support system of planet Earth to bring humanity to repentance. And he may do the same for us if that's what it takes. God will do whatever it takes because his love for us knows no limits. God is removing everything that man depends on more than God. And you want a reference on this? Romans 1. Romans 1 tells us that man refuses to worship the Creator. In Romans 1, who does man wind up worshiping? Yeah, they look in the mirror and they go, oh, hi, wow, you know, you know, don't you look like a god? You know, this morning none of us did. Come on. I mean, you know, even after you have your face on, I mean, we still need some help here, right? That's part of life, right? But it says, Romans 1, they worship the creature, they even worship the creation, right? They don't worship the creator. Have you noticed that humanity is in the middle of making a god out of the earth? The earth goddess? I mean, we worship whales. We worship polar bears, right? Most importantly, we worship ourselves. Now, what's God's attitude toward idolatry? What does he do with idols? He destroys idols. If you want this planet destroyed, worship it. God will destroy all idolatry. Because he will brook no idol worship. Because he knows that idol worship will kill us. It's cancer. It will destroy us at that point in time. Don't spend a minute worrying about global warming going to destroy God's world. Just you wait to see what God does with his world. It's his place, right? Now, by the way, God gave us dominion over the planet to steward it. Steward means care for. If you want to know what the planet should look like, the entire planet should look like the Garden of Eden. God gave us a model. He said, you want to know what the earth should look like? Here it is, Garden of Eden. Go and have dominion over the planet and make the whole planet look like the Garden of Eden. That's the standard. So we have thrashed the planet. Now we worship the planet, which is sinful, but we're supposed to steward the planet and we're doing a lousy job of it. So I'm not against caring for the planet. We're going to be held accountable to take care of the planet. But you don't worship what you take care of. You worship God, and as a result of that, it's his planet, and you take care of his planet. You don't trash his planet. But we've fallen off the other end, and we're worshiping it. God is going to destroy anything that has sin in it, and the planet is number one on the list after humanity. Verse 8. That's number one. Second judgment. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and on the land died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So this judgment is not on the dry land. Now we're moving to judgment on the salt water. Marine water is now under judgment at that point. And it's John says something like a great mountain. By the way, when Scripture says like, what does he mean? It's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. It's a description. John says it's kind of like a great big mountain on fire. 
We don't know exactly what that is, but I would assume if we take a literal interpretation, he's probably talking about a meteor or an asteroid. One of the two that burns up as it's screaming through the atmosphere, right? To date, the largest meteor strike we know of hit the ocean near the Yucatan Peninsula. Left a crater about 110 miles diameter. Fairly good sized crater. Now, you can't argue the fact that there was a meteor strike there. We got data, we got evidence. You would, I would clearly argue that it happened 65 million years ago. I think that's bunk. I think you can look geologically and make a very, very good case for about a 10,000-year-old Earth. But the fact that a meteor strike hit, absolutely, we got the evidence. It's thought that the size of the asteroid that left a hole 110 miles across was about 10 kilometers in diameter. It's about six miles. So I want you to think a chunk of rock about six miles in diameter comes blowing through the atmosphere at high speed, hits the ocean, creates a crater about 110 miles across. So John calls this something like a great mountain. Could be the biggest asteroid yet. What can you assume if you have a meteor or an asteroid that large hit the ocean? You will probably see mega tsunamis. You will see, at that size, you will see waves hundreds of feet high. Just point of reference. The highest point in the entire state of Florida, 345 feet. That's it. 600 foot wave. Boy, you could be swimming in Florida. You might flood the whole state, right? What's it gonna do to shipping? What's it gonna do to ports? What's it going to do to harbors? What's it going to do to trade? What's it going to do to travel? As of July 1, 2012, there was 87,483 87, registered ocean-going vessels on planet Earth. July 1, 2012, about 88,000 vessels. Scripture says how many of them are going to be sunk? One-third. One you got about 30,000 ocean-going vessels clogging up harbors, clogging up ports, bottom of the ocean. Think that's going to have an impact on trade? I don't think I'd want to be in the cruising industry at that point, right? <laughs> We've got today about one-third of the human population, about 2.4 billion people, that live within 60 miles of an oceanic coast. 60 miles, right? If interesting, this is speculation, the, the, the sea level here, how, what's the elevation we're at here in Bakersfield? 400. About 400 feet tall, right? 400 feet up. If you had a large enough tsunami, you could blow a wave right through the Carquina Straits through the Delta and down the valley. We're not going to be here, by the way. We're going to be raptured. But just saying, you know, you might, if I didn't believe this, I would be like, maybe it's time to get a boat, you know, at some point in time. So it'll be interesting to see, but the, the human impact is going to be staggering. He says, one-third of the sea became blood. We've seen this before. What was the first plague of Egypt? I turned the water into blood. Now, Dr. Henry Morris is a creation scientist and a hydrologist. He said the ability to turn water into blood, either by filling it with the actual bodies of blood of dead animals, I mean, it says one-third are going to die, the sea creatures, or by transforming it chemically or biochemically into blood-red water, poisoned by multitudes of dead microorganisms, as is well known by the red tides. You've seen red tides. Okay, that's the same kind of a picture at that point in time. But if you destroy one-third of the sea life on the earth, what do you do to the food chain? It's catastrophe at that point in time, catastrophe. So we have two judgments, two to go. Number three, 
verse 10. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell upon a third of the rivers and upon the springs of water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. So now we've had judgment on the land, we've had judgment on the marine water, now we're going to have judgment on the fresh water, the rivers and the springs and the aquifers that are essential for drinking and irrigation. When they talk about a great star here, we assume that it's a physical object. I think literally scripture would say that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a supposition here that it's probably a comet because it's described as burning very, very brightly. Comets are made of dust, ice, and snow. Okay, Small rock particles. They're kind of a snowy dirt ball or a dirty snowball. Okay, That's what they've been said. The nucleus of an average comet is about 10 miles in diameter. And you say, well, that's not very big, right? You put a 10 mile diameter comet through the atmosphere at high speed, it's going to be very interesting. Very interesting. It's going to burn like a torch because of the friction of going through the atmosphere. But what is intriguing, did a little research this week, some comets, all comets' nucleus contain gases. Many of them include a gas called hydrogen cyanide. It smells like almonds and it's very, very bitter. And it's lethal in concentrations over five parts per million. So don't mess with hydrogen cyanide. If we have a comet that blows through the atmosphere and we have a bolide strike, which means the comet actually blows up, explodes like the one at Tsunga we talked about last week over Siberia in 1908, if it blows up in the atmosphere, you've got a massive contamination problem. Massive contamination problem. Depending on where it lands, you could very easily see it poisoning watersheds and then everything downriver at that point in time would be destroyed and would be made toxic. It says a third of the waters became wormwood. Now, wormwood is an actual plant that's very bitter to the taste. And they make uh, something called absinthe, A-B-S-I-N-T-H-E, it's a liquor, right? Made out of the wormwood plant. In Roman times, they gave you this drink to kill intestinal parasites. And it was so bitter that they would take the rim of the glass that you were drinking it from and they would coat it with honey. Because when you drank this stuff, it was like cod liver oil. I mean, it's really, really, really bitter stuff. You probably couldn't get this stuff down. On the other hand, if you have intestinal parasites, you might want to think about it, you know, just a thought. <laughs> if you survive the drink, right? The pest parasites might die and you die too. That's not what we had in mind. So, but in scripture, wormwood always refers to bitterness, judgment, sorrow, calamity. What John is saying is one third of all the fresh water is going to be undrinkable. It's going to be toxic. It's going to be poisoned. How many days can humans survive without fresh water? Three. You can go weeks without food, by the way. You can go three days without water. You're going to die from thirst. So what do you presume here if one-third of all the fresh water suddenly becomes toxic and poisoned? A lot of people are going to die of thirst. And the ones that get desperate will drink the water, just like marine water, and then you're going to die from the poison at that point in time. What's it going to do to all the fish in the fresh water? Third of them are gone. What about all the vegetation nearby the freshwater streams? What about all the animals that drink water out of the streams and the lakes and the rivers? Think consequence. Think consequence in implication. So when you see this, you say, I wonder what the implication of one-third of the freshwater going bad is. You can really start painting an interesting picture at that point. You get an idea that God really looks at sin seriously? When you look at the seriousness of his judgments, you would conclude that God really hates sin. Uh, yeah, you should conclude that. 
It took the death of his son to pay the freight so we didn't have to pay for it ourselves. So yeah, he takes sin very seriously. Verse 12. Fourth angel sounds. And a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were smitten so that a third of them might be darkened and the day might not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. So we've had judgment on the dry land, we've had judgment on the marine water, we've had judgment on the fresh water, now we've got judgment on heavenly bodies. God now is going to pass judgment on the source of the earth's energy, which is the, which is the sun. I don't understand how this is going to work, and I want you to understand that I don't need to know how it works. That's not the point. The creator of the heavens and earth can do anything he wants, yes? He doesn't have to do it in a way that I go, oh, I get how you made that work. I don't have to understand that. I just need to know that when God says it, he's going to make it happen. And the creator of the heavens and earth can do what he wants to do with his creation. But he's going to reduce available sunlight by one-third. If you reduce available sunlight to one-third on planet Earth, what happens to average temperatures? What happens to snowfall? What happens to global warming? What happens to food production and growing seasons when you cut sunlight by one-third? What happens to your sleep cycle? Your circadian rhythms? Thrashed, right? So, two thoughts here. The reduction in sunlight could be something as simple as cloud or smoke cover. We have all these fires. We have huge amounts of cloud cover and smoke cover, so the available light to hit planet Earth is just cut by one-third. There's just not the sunlight that's able to get through to the surface of the Earth to grow stuff. And that would indicate the sun is shining normally, but one-third less light is reaching the Earth. The other implication is that the light reduction could be from an eclipse, which basically says all light from the sun is blocked for one-third of the time. The sun still shines bright, but it's just blocked for one-third of the time. The third alternative is even more intriguing, which means God basically takes the sun like a rheostat and goes <laughs> and cranks it down. And says, I'm just reducing the solar output by 30%, and you guys are going to have to live with it. Now, we do know that this light reduction is temporary. Because if you look at chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, God's going to turn the rheostat the other way. And he's going to heat up the planet. He says he's going to turn the heat up to the point where it's going to scorch people with intense heat. And, of course, then sunscreen will be a real hot seller. You won't be able to get any of it. So God, who created the sun, can certainly turn up its light razor down just like he wants to at that point in time. Remember the purpose. What did we say the purpose was? God is going to destroy man's physical life support system to bring them to the point of repentance. Right? He's judging sin. He wants people to go to heaven with him, and he is now bringing judgment, so you will repent. Now, every, all this was predicted. All this was predicted by Jesus Christ in Luke 21. Luke 21, 25, for those of you who want to cross-reference, says, Jesus is telling his disciples, by the way, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be signs in the sun, and signs in the moon, and signs in the stars. And upon the earth, there's going to be dismay among nations, and perplexity, the roaring of the sea and the waves. Tsunamis, right? People are going to go, I don't get this. Why is everything I was counting on falling apart? Why is the planet literally disintegrating in front of our eyes? And it says in verse 26, men are going to faint from fear. That literally means their heart's going to stop. They're going to be scared to death, literally to death, <laughs> cardiac arrest. Matthew 24, 29, for those who want to cross-references, it says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus predicted all this 2,000 years ago. 
You know, mankind has always taken the predictability and the reliability of this universe for granted, right? Sunrise, sunset. We assume it's going to happen every day, right? Spring, summer, fall, winter, rain to grow crops. We just assume it's going to be there. So we get on our high horse and we tell God that we're large and in charge and we don't need him until we get a little virus, and then we're reduced to a quivering mass of protoplasm on the bed, dehydrating, right? And we go, maybe I'm not so large and in charge after all, right? God is going to disrupt and destroy anything that we trust in more than him. Everything we take for granted, everything we worship besides him is going to be destroyed. And the whole point is to put an end to sin. Put an end to sin and bring about revival. Now, let me give you an example. You're in the middle of the South Pacific, and you're on a ship. Unfortunately, this ship is sinking, full of holes, falling apart. And there's a rescue ship pulled up alongside, and they offer to take you on board. Why wouldn't you leave the sinking ship and be saved? Would you think that would make sense? Well, of course. The ship I'm on is going where? Down. Wouldn't it be smart to get off a sinking ship and get on a rescue ship? Yeah? So what's God doing? He's saying, this ship you're on called Planet Earth, I'm destroying it. It's sinking. It's, being, it's falling apart. But salvation's being proclaimed. I've got a new home for you in heaven, and you can go there. All you got to do is repent. Turn to Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive your sins. Trust him as your Savior. Why would you stay on a sinking planet called Planet Earth? Scripture says there's a lot of people that are going to do it. You know why? They love their sin. They love their sin. When you, we're going we're to find out in the next few months, God brings judgment, revival. Judgment, revival. And there's a core people that go, they curse God. No matter what, I'm going to stay on the sinking ship. It's my ship. I'll see it to the ground, right? You know, even Superman left his home on planet Krypton before it got destroyed, right? And he wasn't a real bright guy. It was... Father's the one who sent him on the ship. Interesting, you know, there's, there's metaphors all through scripture of this. I mean, all through the culture of this, you know. Remember, his dad put him on a ship and said, this planet's falling apart. You better get off the sinking ship before it disintegrates. Well, this planet is disintegrating. But God has a better home for us. It's called a rescue, called heaven, and you can go there. Now, if you want a little encouragement to make a decision, and you're going, well, I'm not so sure about this. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll delay deciding. <laughs> Read verse 13. Just in case you need a little pitchfork up your spinal column to get you motivated to make a decision, verse 13. And I looked, and I heard an angel, an eagle, flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa, 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 to those who dwell on the earth. Why? Because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, the word eagle, most translations use the word eagle. Some use angel. The reality of who's, who's doing the announcement is not nearly so important as the announcement being made. It says mid-heaven. That literally means atmospheric heaven, so it's where birds fly. And he says, whoa. Now, what does whoa mean? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> whoa means calamity and curse. At the same time, it's very intense sorrow and very intense grief, and there's an element of divine judgment in it. 
you deserve what you got coming. It's misery and evil have come upon me due to divine judgment. Woe, woe, woe. And he says, woe to those who dwell on the earth. He literally means earth dwellers. Earth dwellers are people that don't have any citizenship in heaven. This is their home. If this is your home, you're going to be homeless really soon when God decides to move, right? So best get a permanent residence lined up in heaven, right? Because this place is not going to be here. It's temporary. And he says, there are those whose citizenship is here because they reject God. Woe to them because the planet is their home and the planet's going away. And he says, there's three more blasts on the trumpet. And if you think this is bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. These first four judgments just affect the physical planet. The next three are spiritual in nature, and you're going to find out if you read ahead to chapter 9, they involve demonic attacks on people. On people, not on physical stuff. It's attacks on people at that point. So God is giving us this warning in chapter 8. He says, here's my strategy, my battle plan to take back my planet, my battle plan to destroy evil, and to give you all a home in heaven. As we found out last week, the gospel is being preached throughout here. You don't have to stay in a sinking ship. And throughout the tribulation period, you are seeing a gospel witness over and over again. So let me give you a summary before we do prayer and praise. Here's the key idea. God's judgments are so severe because our sin is so serious God's judgments are extreme, but even more extreme is God's grace. In the middle of all this judgment, don't lose sight of God's mercy. He's merciful throughout this. He's not willing that any should perish. So he always says, I've got a rescue ship alongside. You don't have to stay on the sinking ship. The purpose of prayer is not to get your will done in heaven. It's to get God's will done on earth. So what are you praying for? And lastly, God will destroy man's entire life support system in order to bring people to repentance, to bring people to himself. In love, he may do the same for you. So sometime this week or next week or this month or next month, you are going to experience things in your life and you are going to say, my world is falling apart. Why is God allowing this stuff to happen to me? And I will tell you, he has plan and purpose behind everything. And everything he does is motivated by love. Don't ever buy the lie, God doesn't love me, that's why he's not giving me my lollipop before bedtime. <laughs> God loves you, and because he loves you, he has a plan, and that plan may involve taking things out of your life to bring you back to depending on him. So when that occurs, he loves you, and he wants a deeper relationship with you. Amen? Amen. All right, now that you know, go and do.